the digital transition. Digital Transition, a podcast series created to assist those tasked with implementing digital strategies, where we will share our knowledge and experiences to support you in your transition. Welcome to the Digital Transition, powered by Bond University's Building Information Modeling Program. I'm your host, Nathan Hildebrand, and today I'm talking with James Vincent from NCS Next Australia about how technology can assist businesses, communities, and nations in obtaining greater knowledge which can drive efficiencies and create more economical and sustainable outcomes. But before I start my interview with James, I need to talk to you about our exclusive sponsor. Bond University are leading the way in BIM education in Australia through their Master of Building Information Modelling and Integrated Project Delivery course. They also have a great micro-credential offering. Now, these courses were the first and remain the only university courses in Australia to be formally accredited by Building Smart Australasia. And this, this course was recognised internationally with a special mention for leadership in the Open BIM in Education uh, in the Professional Research category in the 2020 Building Smart International Awards. Head to the Bond University website via the link in the show notes to learn more about their educational offerings. Now into my conversation with James. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today, James. Yeah, no problem, Nathan. Thanks for having me on. Really excited to be here. So, James, for those that aren't aware of uh, who you are, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and, your, and your history and your career. Yeah, sure. So my role as Chief Technology Officer for NCS here in Australia is a quite varied role, but there's three core components to what I currently do. My primary focus is to look at the strategic roadmap for our products and services. So really that's about just getting out and talking to our clients and having those conversations about their needs and what they're aiming to achieve for their businesses and making sure that the types of things we do resonate with them and are relevant. The other aspect to that is working really closely with our partners. So that's the likes of, you know, with us, Amazon Web Services, Microsoft, Google, but there's a lot of smaller uh, niche industry players that we work with as well. And what we like to do with our partners is really look at how we can innovate together and, you know, bring their products and services to life here locally in the Australian industry. And then finally, there's an internal facing aspect to my role, which is about internal staff training and development and really making sure that we're building the right skill sets to ensure that, you know, we can remain relevant and do those creative and innovative things as well. So that's aspects of mentoring and, uh, you know, staff development training plans and things like that. So it's a very broad role, um, but really it's about how we bring those things together to make sure that we remain a really effective modern and progressive industry player. So for me personally, prior to joining NCS, you know, I've had a quite broad industry background. I spent a lot of time in banking and finance, but I've also done some time in uh, the energy industry and logistics as well. Two incredibly fascinating industries that are investing deeply in their own digital transitions and, you know, really looking at some interesting parallels to your world, you know, when we can talk about some of those. And then moving beyond that, you know, I've got a very technical background. So a lot of my experience has been in things like technical solution architecture and developing solutions for particular clients or industry needs. Um, and then if you really rewind the clock all the way back, I'm actually a qualified mechanical engineer as well. And I did spend a little bit of time in the building services industry when I came out of uni. So I got a little bit of context around some of the stuff that you do. And I remember some of the very early instances of building management systems, you know, and seeing those basic monitoring and alerting things popping up on screens and how revolutionary that was at the time, you know, sort of going back to the uh, early to mid nineties. 
I don't want to start on BMSs right yet, but I will have a yeah. quick. I'm going to remind myself to ask you a question about that shortly um, because I think that your insights, because of the background that you bring, you bring the background of the technology but also mechanical engineering, so you have a strong awareness of that as a starting point. But yeah. so I stay on track. I'm not going to get distracted by that because you've, you've already touched a nail with me. Basically, for people out there that don't actually understand uh, or know about uh, NCS Next Australia, what services do you actually provide your clients in terms of the? You might have a, it might be a breadth of of clients. It might not be totally relevant to, or it could be completely relevant to our listeners. Yeah, sure. I mean, looking simplistic terms, NCS is a, a technology organisation, a, a global based technology organisation. We're about two thousand people strong here in Australia, but if you look across our parent in Singapore and throughout Southeast Asia, that number grows closer to twelve thousand and even beyond that through some of our partners. So we're a fairly sizable operation now. The sorts of things we do, if you bring it back to fundamentals in technology, are really focused around cloud, data, digital, and then emerging technology as well, which is where you things like your AI and your digital twins come into play. But in terms of industry segment, we're very broad. And this is one of the things that I think actually makes us quite effective um, in the way that we work as well, because we can cross-pollinate ideas from one industry to another. You know, so we work across finance, telecommunications, utilities, healthcare. We do a lot of work with government um, in general, whether it be at state or federal level. And there's some amazing digital transformation things happening within government as well. You know, we've got quite a progressive government here in Australia, which we're very fortunate to have. And then we're even going to think, you know, diverse industries such as retail and heavy industries like mining as well. But really what people would see as a result of all of that, you know, when we're working with clients, it can be really looking at aspects of technology advisory and strategy, you know, so how do they achieve their business goals and objectives through technology? We do a lot of work in uh, digital application development as well. So you would see iOS applications, Android-based applications. We've got really amazing award-winning designers and developers in that space. We're very strong in data platforms for analytics and insight, which is something obviously very, very relevant to this topic of conversation. And then beyond that, it's really the large-scale cloud adoption as well. So really getting organizations into cloud and making the most of modern technology, not just lift and shift, but how do you really unlock those capabilities that the large cloud players are actually bringing to market. So ultimately, what we aim to do is really leverage technology to have great impact for our clients and help them bring their vision to life. You're the perfect person to be talking to um, <laughs> in, 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 in those sense now. I got triggered when you talked about BMSs. Idea. <laughs> no, I, I, I really think this is an important topic. Now, several months ago, I, I got to interview Alexander Bolton and, and Mark Coates when they're out here in Australia. It was back in September when we released the podcast early in this series. I think I can't remember. It might have been episode 52, possibly, from memory. But I actually asked her this pointed question, and it's and it's based upon my personal beliefs. And, and I'd be interested from the technology perspective what your thoughts are as well on this. And this is probably the most controversial question I'll ask you today, but is a digital twin new marketing or a fancy new term for a BMS? It is a controversial question. Um, But look, I think we're all mature enough to know that digital twins mean different things to different people, right? And one of the fascinating things about playing some really rapid catch up on your podcast and its progression over the last four years has been to see what that understanding in the industry is and how that's evolved over time as well. And that's not unique to your industry at all, right? We're seeing this across all sorts of industries. And, you know, there's a prevailing understanding out there in the community that a digital twin is a 3D virtual reality representation of anything, right? Something, anything. 
right? Others will tell you that, no, it's only a digital twin when it becomes a model that can do scenario and predictive analysis and analytics. And we are seeing the industry trend towards that. Right. But I think we're always going to have this scenario where a term like digital twin is a little bit provocative and it will mean different things to different people. In a simplistic term, a digital twin is really any form of representation of a real world system that's codified. Right. If you take advantage of that digital twin and leverage it for its true purpose, that's when you can start to do your scenario modeling and your what if type analysis. Right. And one of the things that I, I loved about listening to some of the things from four years ago, you know, was the lament of the use of Excel spreadsheets to manage, you know, complex building systems and even, you know, groups and clusters of buildings. And, uh, you know, I can tell you Excel is still probably the number one data analytic tool in use in industry today. Right. So we've all still got a long way to go, Nathan. There's, there's a lot that we can do to improve our understanding of digital twins and the capabilities. You know, and we can definitely get into this more, but, you know, I would comment that the, the biggest change we're, we're seeing in industry now is that the technology to realize that objective and to realize that vision of a digital twin, it actually really works now. And it's very accessible and achievable. And I think a lot of people have sort of dismissed it. You know, a lot of people have tried, they've spent money, they've been a bit disappointed in the result they've got, and they've moved on, they've gone back to focus on fundamentals. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I think it's really important to periodically review that position and have a look at what can and is being achieved in industry. Now, there was a period I remember here in Queensland, uh, probably about oh, maybe it might have been 18 months ago because time flies, right? You, things happen. <laughs> time goes past you. But there was a period of time where I know from memory that the Queensland State Government put a complete halt on ICT spending. When we're talking about digital transitions, Technology is required and, and, and a foundation is required to enable that. Now, I did a little bit of research yesterday and, and, and I, was, I was shocked. Consumer confidence is now as low as it was uh, during COVID in 2020 and, and even kind of very close to the level that it was during the global financial crisis in 2007. So we're seeing a scenario where the interest rate rises that the, the, R, the RBA are doing uh, are working uh, in some ways, but they're working against us in terms of progressing forward. What would be your suggestion and, as, and, and from, from why businesses right now should be investing in technology? Yeah, this is an amazing and interesting topic, Nathan. And, you, you know, if you look at my industry as technology in general, right, we're seeing enormous impact globally uh, because of this, you know, a lot of large tech organizations laying off staff at the moment. And it seems very arbitrary, right, in the way in which they're going about it. And certainly from an external point of view, it can seem very arbitrary as well. You know, and I think the thing is when you look at downturns in the economic cycle, right, there's always going to be a flight to caution. And I don't think that's necessarily a, a surprise for us. But when you start to pause your uh, technology strategy and pause those investments, there is considerable downstream impact for that. And I think sometimes that short-sightedness is something that we really need to shine a bit of a spotlight on because, in truth, I think what we're seeing is that turbulence is the new normal. And I think you can retreat for a little while, but it's not necessarily a viable long-term strategy. And so if you start to look specifically at the positive and the optimistic lens of this thing, you know, technology is a great enabler for efficiency. And I think what we really need to do is focus on how organizations can leverage technology to handle changing circumstance and actually to thrive in changing circumstance. So if you're investing in technology in the right way, it can make you really adaptable. 
So the way you handle things such as changes in fulfillment process, maybe it's supply chain and logistics and responding to economic change in circumstance. And of course, the classic example of this that we all lived through, you know, was the the COVID period where all of a sudden you had such an impact on the workforce and organizations were scrambling to deal with things like workforce mobility, people working from home, um, the fact that your customers can no longer come to you. So how do you adapt to that? And I think those who really had their technology story right were able to move very quickly. They were able to make their staff effective. They were able to change things such as fulfillment processes, you know, the concept of click and collect type operations um, in retail. And those who could do that and could adapt quite rapidly even saw competitive advantage. And some of them even thrived through that circumstance where others really struggled. So to me, I think, you know, when we start to look at the reasons for investing, in technologies to really focus in on that notion of increasing efficiency, reducing operating costs, and more importantly, improve productivity um, of your staff base as well. You know, there is so much technology that actually really does work and is really effective these days. You know, we can look at things like low-code, no-code platforms, giving staff the ability to take a really high degree of control over the way in which they get their work done day to day. And then I think you can even take a more broader lens on this and really start to explore the notion of the opportunity cost of doing nothing, right? And this is the thing where I think the unforeseen um, you know, effects of inaction really start to take hold, right? So in the simplistic terms, you know, if you're pausing and your competitors aren't, then obviously there's some real challenges that you're going to face when you try to start up again. But the things that people didn't really understand and didn't expect to happen were really around accumulation of experience and the impact on staff and skills, right? So we talk a lot about skill shortage in this country. Well, the reality is employees go to where the interesting work is happening. And a lot of organizations that pause those programs of work and technology investment during that period, they looked around all of a sudden and found that their staff were no longer with them when they wanted to start things up again and become competitive again in industry. And, you know, it's no surprise where those staff were going, right? They were going to competitors or perhaps other industries that were investing and being more progressive. And so it's really alarming, particularly when we see uh, that sort of behavior coming out of governments, which in many ways should really be trying to encourage investment and encourage our industries to move forward and take a long-term and progressive view about the types of things that we want to achieve as as a nation as well, right? And it's a very, very complex and difficult topic to get into, but there are absolutely ways in which technology can help every organization to achieve more in difficult economic times. Yeah. And one of the things I guess you touched on just then as well is, is, is the challenge that we have with our skill shortage and specifically within the AEC industry, we're seeing a substantial uh, spend right now in the areas of infrastructure. And, and, and when you look at the, the pipeline of work that's coming through, it's quite scary in terms of the volume of work that is coming. I know that uh, the current federal government have opened the floodgates in some ways with immigration uh, to come into the country over the next couple of years. That may or may not help it. Yes. <laughs> I think I think there needs to be uh, an approach, a smart approach here with regards to you know the unemployment rate. I think actually needs to go up a percent or two. <laughs> and I know that's not a that's a, not a very uh, comfortable socialist uh, view. It's a very business person oriented view in terms of to slow the, the slow the growth of things down and actually making making business more sustainable for people. But if we take a step away from that concept of being and focusing on the negative, right? So one of the things that I liked about the thing you 
you talked about was, you know, I'm going to take a positive approach to this, this downturn yeah. and I'm going to look at this and, and go, well, what can I do to make a difference? So how can we turn this skill shortage into a positive, right? How can we turn this, how can we turn this into a positive and go, well, yep, we don't have enough, we don't have enough people right now. What are other ways in which we can address these shortage? Are there ways in which technology can be implemented to essentially take up some of the slack, create that efficiency and and and, and drive that extra uh, workload that we need to fill the gaps with the shortage of people power? Yeah, absolutely. There are, you know, and I think that scenario that you described, Nathan, it's true of almost any industry, right? So I don't think this is constrained to the design and construction industry in any way, shape or form, although there are no doubt sort of nuanced aspects to that, right? But what I find really interesting when I look across the Australian landscape, right, is we have an enormous depth of talent here in this country. You know, and what I mean by that is that the people we have are genuinely very, very skilled. They're very enthusiastic. They're deeply engaged in the work that they want to do and they want to be, you know, world scale and they want to be world leaders, you know, truth be told. The challenge we have, of course, is just we, we lack scale, right? Like to, to your point, we've got this massive pipeline of work and we really don't know how we're going to facilitate it and it's enable it and make it happen, right? It's going to be extremely hard. So it might sound a little bit corny, but I think in some ways it comes back to, you know, doing the most with what we have and how can we really improve that staff efficiency. And so I think what we really need to be doing is focusing on those investments in technology that can actually help people be their best and achieve their best at work, right? There's a number of different things we can do. And what we're starting to see is that a lot of investment in digital transformation is now focusing internally within the organization. So if you think about that previous wave of digital transformation, it's been very customer centric. You know, how can I get a better customer experience? How can I get more customer engagement through my digital platforms like my web presence or my mobile apps? What we're really seeing now is organizations are saying, you know, if we could put that same digital transformation lens to work for our staff, we could actually get a much more effective, much more engaged um, and more productive workforce, right? And this is the whole thing about doing more with less. So there's a lot of ways we can apply technology to take care of things like, you know, what we call the repetitive heavy lifting, right? Or, you know, for you and I, you might just say the boring aspects of our job, the grunt work, the things that we have to do sort of every day to get things done, right? How can we automate and remove that burden from our day so that we can really focus on the things that humans want to do, right? Which is be creative or tackle the really difficult challenges and focus on strategy as opposed to focusing on survival, right? So, there's many solutions in industry around this, varying degrees of effectiveness. You know, we've seen ways of robotic process automation that have really looked at those core repetitive things. I think there's room for another wave of that, particularly with some of the cool topics like generative AI coming into our industry now, which I think, you know, we should probably have a bit of a chat about when we get to. Safety at speed to me is really the mantra. That's the thing that we're aiming for. So how do we move faster? How do we get things happening with much more agility in business? But how do we keep our organizations safe, manage risk, and keep our people safe and protected as we do that as well? So, you know, I mentioned earlier the notion of low-code, no-code platforms, and this is really enabling people to leverage technology. There's a lot of investment happening in that space right now, and it really does work when you teach people how to use these tools. It's amazing the sort of solutions they come up with. You no longer have to hire software developers and programmers to do the most basic of technology functions that can really help people with their day-to-day work. I think more specifically, 
you know, when we look at some of the technologies like the use of AR and virtual reality um, in training, this is where the skills aspect gets really interesting, right? So I'm sure many of your listeners, we, you know, would have seen some amazing footage of people wearing virtual reality headsets and undertaking maintenance tasks or maybe cross-skilling of the staff that we have, right? And I think these things that we can do that can actually help accelerate um, and the ability of our people to learn new things and to take new approaches and to be guided and kept safe as they do that. These are the things that I think can really unlock amazing capability shifts in many, many industries. You know, and I think I think the more technical and the more heavy that industry is, and the more safety is a factor in that, the greater impact a, a role of something like virtual reality can have in those sorts of overlays, right? And what you start to find as people adopt these technologies is they don't just become more agile, but they get a massive improvements in quality because you're now being guided through the tasks that you perform. Um, and enormous improvements in safety as well, because the AI can detect if somebody's actually not doing something the way they should be doing, and it can really call out where hazards and issues might arise or might exist for you know complex and challenging technical tasks as well. So ultimately, if you shine a really positive lens on this, and if we get this stuff right, you know I think the technology can actually act as a skills generator here in Australia. I think it can bring amazing economic benefit. I think that we can look at our our education industry and we can look more broadly across the industry as well to demonstrate how we can be a global leader in this space and ultimately a, a net exporter, not just of technology, but of skills as well. And I think that's one of the goals the UK government had originally when they set out their their kind of um, digital process. They were hoping to try and export 50% they were trying to get an ex- their exports of you know AEC expertise up to 50%. Now, I don't know how that's gone because that was a, a paper that was written back in 2015. And, you know, I think we found here in Australia, as, long, as well as in the UK, the take-up has been a, a, a longer drawn-out process than it's, it's needed. Now, one of the things that I really appreciate from a technology standpoint are these, are, are the low-code and no-code stuff. So, I come from a a technical minded architect, and we're not going to get we're not going to get into a debate about technology architects either today and stealing stealing titles that are no. that you can't steal. But I come from that mindset of a technical architect and knowing how a building gets built, but then have the strategic technical direction to understand how process and technology should be implemented. And I think the barrier for most people and and what prevents them is fear. Uh, of, of uh, you know, not being able to achieve certain outcomes or not knowing how to do things, and I see some several of my peers that I that I frequently catch up with are very well skilled in coding things. So trying to find that happy medium, you know, what sort of platforms exist where people that are like me, very clever, they understand their processes, but can't get under that, haven't got a computer science degree. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, it's an incredibly interesting field and it's one that's evolving very, very rapidly. You know, and I, I think the classic example in the industry at the moment would be the Power Platform, you know, from Microsoft as a bit of an extension of, of Office, you know, a platform that many of us are very, very familiar with. And how can we actually leverage those automation tools uh, that are available within that platform? But, you know, the really interesting space to watch in this, Nathan, I think is really where generative AI is going to take all of this. So rather than have to really think through that uh, that process and how I might bring software to bear and how 
I might start to try to play around the edges of being a quasi programmer, or maybe I would just want to simplify the way I ingest data sets into my Excel spreadsheets that I know and love and will passionately <laughs> hold on to forever. Right. You know, it, maybe I get data in email and I just want to simplify that process of every day, you know, plugging that into Excel. Those are the sorts of use cases we're really seeing people adopt with Gusto at the moment. But I think in future, what will really unlock this capability is when we can just ask the computer to do what we want. You know, and this is where the, the generative AI comes in. So, you know, being able to at a at a prompt or even verbally ask a computer, you know, please ingest this data from, from point A to point B, do it every day for me at 9 a.m. and you know, highlight where there's some gaps in that data and have the computer be able to do that. I mean, it's incredibly powerful. It's an amazing enabler for many, many people. And I think that, you know, the future prospects of this type of technology are, are really wonderful and amazing. It's, it's a conversation that kind of has to happen with it, with when we're talking about technology. And, you know, I get excited about it, but at the same time, I'm a cautious person. So I, I, I do my risk assess, risk assessments when it comes to every kind of piece of technology that I investigate. And seeing chat GPT come out and all of the other kind of claimed AI tools that, you know, generating imagery and all that sort of stuff. I personally think that, once again, it's a marketing thing, right? I don't see it as AI yet. I look at it as being machine learning because a person's programmed that to respond in particular ways. And and I haven't gotten in that depth yet where I've programmed it with enough uh, information to enable it to provide smart answers, I guess. What's your thoughts like in terms of where machine learning and, and, and AI, and I guess at the same time you can probably come in and say whether you think my views on AI and machine learning is is wrong as well. I don't mind that. I like that. But what's your views on its kind of its state of play right now and its usefulness versus where you think it might be moving to in the future. And I know it's probably touching upon making, you know, Microsoft power a bit even stronger. For example, if Microsoft embedded some of this into it where basically you kind of just write a sentence and then it sets up the all the steps that you need. Absolutely. And look, I'm smiling as you're talking here, Nathan. You know, <laughs> your, your audience can't see that. But, uh, you know, your, your views are really insightful. Right. And I think that comes from your technical background. Uh, the really interesting thing is the effective reach that this technology is now having into people who don't necessarily come from that technical background. You know, and we can get into, you know, debates around definition, right? But in really simplistic terms, you know, for, for the audience benefit, right? I look at AI as the broader umbrella. You know, AI is really just attempting to mimic humans, right? So anything we might do, such as be able to read text or or speak, um, you know, mimicking that sort of behavior, that's artificial intelligence. Machine learning really just becomes the mechanisms by which we can train that artificial intelligence to be more effective at what it does, right? And then I think when we get into the, the generative is when we really start to look at aspects where we can move beyond basic human capability. So, you know, the machines can actually start to discover, infer, reason, um, even self-educate in the case of generalized AI, right? And it's a very, very open and, and, you know, complex topic in and of itself, you know, but you imagine if you had the ability to, in real time, you know, translate any conversation into any language you wanted, maybe even into multiple languages, right? And all of a sudden you encounter a language that you haven't worked with before but you have the ability to go out and instantaneously educate yourself in that language and be able to continue that conversation in real time, right? That's where, where we're getting to with generalized AI, arming AI with the tools to learn. And I think this is really remarkable. 
But sort of coming back to the heart of your question and the state of play, if I bring it back to fundamental AI and not so much, you know, this bleeding edge generative AI thing, it's a really interesting point in industry right now because I can't think of a single industry that is not actively leveraging AI at this moment to achieve effective outcomes. And, you know, we work across so many different industries, right? I think, you know, I can look at uh, healthcare and some of the things that are happening in, you know, analyzing radiography, right? And it's not about replacing human beings or saying the machine is better at detecting something on a scan than a human. What I hear the real impact there is that when you can start to do this stuff in real time, you can actually do more with the patient when they're with you. So maybe you detect something that needs further investigation. You can actually intervene and do that in real time with the patient rather than, you know, have to go away, take time to analyze that. And at that point, you have to book another appointment with the patient that's impactful, it's stressful on everybody, right? So these sorts of things are about improving human outcome and human experience. Um, but, you know, in finance, I think, you know, AI is being used for things like real-time fraud detection, you know, analyzing massive, massive volumes of data in real time to do classic anomaly detection and start to realize where things are happening that they shouldn't. We're seeing it now increasingly used in things like tailored lending and risk management as well, you know, being able to do those assessments across a broader array of data, do them in real time, um, and, you know, have a huge impact on the bottom line for financial organizations as well and things like responsible lending. In information technology, we've been using it for security um, and breach anomaly detection uh, for quite some time. And, you know, look, I, I could go on about this in so many different industries, um, but, you know, even coming back to building management, right, we are seeing it genuinely used for the optimization of things like HVAC, lighting, water, and even waste management and waste control as well. So, you know, the state of play, I think for me is that it's very real in industry. I think the technology has never been more accessible and more achievable in terms of actually getting to genuine and realistic outcome. Well, the other industries, I guess, you were seeing it kind of more in the, in the, in the, in the spotlight. And I think the challenge is, is that we're seeing within the design and construction industries, you know, there, there are tools out there right now that are being created out of the US and there've been other tools that were used where there was generative design, which was a, which was a fad for a very, very short period of time because the resulting uh, outcomes that produced, you know, hundreds of design options automatically the time it would take a human to then review them would be considerable. So therefore you're actually losing the benefits of what's going on. Then you have parametric design, which is essentially producing solutions based upon data attached to it. And, and I spoke to uh, Clifton Harness about that last year about, and, 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 and seeing that tool in process means it's speeding up the feasibility of things. And there's a lot of excitement and focus on, I guess, design and the pretty things, right? And from my mind, that is a very short time period of in which the assets are being delivered. I want to cover off on two levels today, and I want to start off on you know the micro and the macro. So starting off with the micro level and 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 kind of moving on, I guess from the segue you you, you kind of set up perfectly there for me, and and talking about how systems within buildings can respond. Four years ago, in episode 19, I actually spoke with James Cheesewright. Um, he was with Honeywell at the time. I think he's moved on. He talked about the benefits of using technology to assist in preventative maintenance. Huge topic right now is sustainability. Huge focus is on carbon. Huge focus is on everything to make um, our buildings more efficient. 
it's really good that you come from that kind of mechanical background because not only do you kind of go, well, I understand how a computer system can work to connect all these dots, but you also understand the challenges of and how efficiency is really, really important with construction, you know, and systems and, and mechanical systems and the like. How far has technology progressed over this time uh, from, you know, and, and it might not be just as simple as four years, but in terms of how you've seen it throughout your career, you know, where, where it's sitting today versus where it was in the past and what benefits could be in play? Because the thing is, one of the things that really bothers me is everyone gets fixated on digital twins, but where the money comes is from optimizing systems. And I actually think there's more value for an asset owner to be investing in preventative maintenance or systems which can alert them when there's going to be a problem with their building so that it costs them less to fix or they can identify it earlier. What are your thoughts on what, where technology is today and, and then what, 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 what can clients gain from that? Yeah, and I, I think that statement of benefit realization, Nathan, you know, really goes to your experience in the industry, right? And understanding where those uh, costs come from and where the opportunity is as well. You know, it was fascinating um, listening to that podcast with James, actually, and just rewinding a few years in the industry. You know, Honeywell, I think, have always been a very, very progressive technology organization and have really embraced change. But even to listen to some of the limitations that the technology had, as James described it at that point, was fascinating to me, you know, because I see this across a number of different industries and ways in which we can tackle that. You know, so what we were looking at back then, I think, was still very proprietary type solutions to this problem. And where the technology has evolved at the moment, if you look at the fundamental mathematical modeling of, you know, machine learning and AI, right, those fundamentals don't change. What has changed is the access to the tooling and the level of skill that you need to actually start to leverage this and take advantage of it. And what I'm alluding to here is really the prevalence of large cloud scale platforms, right? And this is what's really changed the industry. You know, we talk about the democratization of technology, which is really about making technology available to everybody. And I really think the last four or five years, we've seen massive change in not just access to compute, but access to really modern tools that can allow us to do a lot more than what we could historically. So it's that cost effectiveness of actually going out and implementing these types of solutions now is so much more effective. It's so much more achievable. And I think what we're really starting to see is larger scale adoption simply because we now have proven models by which this can be done. You know, another one of the limitations I think that we saw um, as James was describing this in the industry is it was also, you know, sort of very single asset centric, like thinking about a building as a standalone unit. There is a couple of things he mentioned about, you know, maybe having a few satellite type facilities and being able to aggregate views. When you start to talk about this ESG space, right, it becomes incredibly important to be able to get multiple degrees of granularity, right? So you might want to dig very specifically into a, you know, a single building or you might want to zoom out and say, well, you know, what's our footprint, you know, nationally, globally, state by state, whatever it may be. And this becomes incredibly important, not just for compliance reporting, but also being able to identify where those optimizations can occur. So what we really see now is a much more connected community, I think, of digital assets that are able to not just aggregate their reporting, but communicate with one another. And this is where we can start to get into some really fascinating areas of where this technology could go in future. Um, But really, I think the main thing to focus on right now is how we can actually adopt technologies such as IoT sensors, uh, 5G, you know, which is becoming really quite ubiquitous and we're enabling that at a great rate in this country. 
you know, how can we process orders of magnitude increase in data to take advantage of those opportunities? And this is where the AI and machine learning can do really great things to optimize and customize things like HVAC curves and, you know, control lighting as well, focus on the experience of the occupants and what matters to them in a building context as well. So there are many, many benefits that we can get. And I think if we really start to take this towards a logical conclusion, one of the things that I'm quite excited about where we could go, you know, having a bit of time in the energy industry as well, is participation in things such as demand response exercises. Right. So, if, you know, for benefit of listeners who may not be familiar with this, this is where you're in, say, a peak, uh, you know, energy usage period. It might be a 40 degree day where, you know, the, the network's uh, really struggling to keep up with electricity demand and we need to do certain things to stabilize the electricity supply. Right? And so you can actually start to harness um, the ability to reduce consumption of electricity in certain industries or maybe even where people have solar and storage pump that energy back into the grid. Now, this has a whole bunch of challenges along with it, but there's also an economic opportunity here. So you imagine if you had a fairly large set of buildings that you were managing and you had the ability to participate in a demand response economy, if you said to the energy producer, you know what, we'll allow you to scale back our HVAC systems during periods of peak demand for a commensurate economic benefit. And so this is when we start to really look at this at large scale and look at connected systems and the ability to actually communicate and have artificial intelligence agents making decisions and acting on our behalf, we can start to unlock some really amazing opportunities and creative ideas. And to me, I think the biggest barrier to change in industry at the moment is not what the technology can do. It's how creatively we can think about the solutions and the sorts of things that we can actually enable. You've now opened a whole myriad of things in my head. Um... I love doing that. That's one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> I was working in in my former role with a major asset owner, and I and I and I, and I won't use any names just to kind of in case people think it's confidential. It, it might not be; it's probably public knowledge. But the methodology that they were adopting to try and curb their energy usage was they switched to geothermal air conditioning. So geothermal um, with heat pumps were essentially, I think their efficiency rate was possibly two to three times better. Than, uh, than a normal traditional standalone system. So dr- drilling holes 90 metres down into the ground with a, with a copper coil going all the way down and then, and then concrete um, uh, mortared into the ground. So then essentially the heat, the heat generated from the air conditioner when it goes back down was cooled naturally by the earth and then by the time it came back up, it came back up um, as a liquid. I think that's the right order. I'll get it right one day. Um, but then at the same time, they were introducing solar panels onto their roofs and then they were also, the, the third phase was, or sorry, they were going to introduce solar panels, but then they also had an electric company, which I won't mention as well, just so that we don't have any other names as well. They had sensors on all of their boards. So they were able to real-time monitor their energy usage across their campuses. And it also then meant that when they were going to hit that peak demand and electricity rate, if they hit over that peak demand and they used too much electricity, their electricity rate for the whole month would go up to that higher rate if they just went over that one point, even for a minute of time. So what they put in place, the, the final objective was is to put in generators. So for that one hour a day that during hot peaks of summer, uh, they'd hit that, they'd, 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 inter- they'd, they'd integrate and do that. 
So it was a massive system, but what it was overall was saving that organisation a substantial amount of electricity, uh, but also then when they hit that one little peak, if they were going to hit that little peak, they then had a system to protect them from that. Now that's, once again, that's a very micro level looking at it, and I think that there's a lot of challenges in that because we could go in and spend a whole day once again talking about the challenges of implementing solar on, on everyone's houses and businesses and then what that does to the system as well and how that can damage it um, by pumping too much electricity into it. And the thing that I really find interesting kind of going from that real-life case study from a real asset in terms of how a client was looking to address their energy usage uh, and comfort levels of their occupants and moving back to kind of how machine learning actually is going to make a huge difference, I think, with um, with building analysis is that because there's not enough buildings right now that have these systems in place, we're not actually capturing well enough energy usage of our buildings and having them segregated out so that we actually understand, you know, is this power coming from lighting? Is this power generating? Um, is this is this electricity or energy? Well, let's use energy instead of electricity because there's many ways we can generate um, energy. Is this energy coming from all of the computers or anything that may be in the, within the building or is it coming from conditioning the, the air? Now imagine there's some great design tools out there right now uh, that can enable people, designers, to design better quality buildings. And at the moment they're saying that it has a certain level of carbon usage over whole of life based upon assumptions of the, or data from the past Imagine the data sets from real-life buildings being utilised at a more granular level because the thing is is that, you know, I'm sitting here in Brisbane, you're sitting today in Victoria, and I guarantee you that the data that they'd used for for whole of life and carbon would be, this is the Australian cost of of this material. They wouldn't get granular and say, well, in Brisbane it costs this and in Melbourne it costs this because, and yes, they'll do some general you know, thermal stuff, but it won't be as granular to how people actually live. They'll treat it as if a building's an esky rather than, you know, right now I've got doors and windows open. In Melbourne, if you did that, you might be a little bit cool this morning. (laughs) Do you see that there's going to be a lot of benefit, I guess, or do you think that democratic data, or and I'm really forgetting a really good term I learnt from, um, another colleague of mine that I interviewed a while ago, and, and I and I lost my mind right when I wanted to say it, but it's it's a, it's a, it's basically enabling data to be accessed by people, and and I guess it's kind of almost on a, the concept of democratic technology. It's almost like democratic data. How can how could this data that we we could start creating from our buildings then inform greater inform the way we design our buildings in the in the future? You know, there's so much in what you just described, Nathan. And, you know, when I hear the story uh, about people consciously investing in things like, you know, the, the geothermal, sorry, geothermal um, energy and cooling and stuff, right? The thing that leaps out to me is the creative ideation yeah. behind that. Uh, it's not so much the technology, you know. And I, I go back to into the industry, you know, when we were looking at things like putting, uh, you know, gas turbines into buildings to co-generate electricity on site by burning gas. 
right? Now you look at the cost effectiveness of that today, and it's a horror story, right? <laughs> you wouldn't want to be the guy that implemented that at large scale, right? You'd be ripping that stuff out now. But, uh, you know, I think I think that long-term sustainable view of, of the technology that we have is really, really important, you know? And I think coming to your point about data and this notion of being able to share data, um, to be able to collaborate around data, really important. And we see this a lot across many, many industries, right? Particularly, we see it in government around interagency sharing of data. We see it in things like emergency services for the ability to conduct shared, um, you know, response and more effective response um, in emergency situations. When everybody's got their own distinct and disparate view of what's happening in a situation, it's very, very hard to be coordinated, right? And I think this mindset can translate into many, many scenarios. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's great to have reference industry standards and frameworks. You know, one of the classic things that we get into as a consultant, when we work with a lot of our clients, regardless of what field it is that we're looking at, the number one question people really want an answer to is, am I normal? Right. Yes. Yes. This is my experience. And yes, you've said I have this level of maturity. It may be in my software development process, maybe the way I operate my IT assets. But the real fundamental question is, is that okay? You know, am I doing well against my peers or am I not? So I, I think the real opportunity in future is, you know, for the experience of a building. If you imagine a building as an entity, uh, you know, or a facility as an entity, you know, imagine it has an act, an agent acting on behalf or you know, its behalf or a degree of sentience, if you will. Right. Imagine if that building could say, hey, you know, I've just had to, you know, up my uh, my energy consumption to drive my HVAC system a bit harder because, you know, I seem to have high occupancy and it's a real sunny, you know, warm, humid day here in Brisbane, you know. Um, <laughs> but imagine if it could ask its peers, are you guys doing the same, right? Is this what you're seeing? You know, it, it seems a bit odd to me. I didn't have to do this last Tuesday. Is this an indication that something's gone wrong, right? And if it could get that real-time feedback and actually start to incorporate that into its optimization and thought process, uh, it's pretty incredible, right, what we could start to do here and how we could leverage that pool of assets. And I think that comes then into this notion of the more granular use of data and the more granular use of response. You know, if your building is doing a certain thing because it's based in Brisbane and my building is doing something different because it's in Melbourne, that's great as long as we've validated that it's happening because of that difference in geographic circumstance, right? So there's all sorts of really amazing and wonderful things we can do when we get into that shared data and that connected world. So the challenge I guess we're facing with information these days is people that have been impacted uh, by hackers and you know at the moment I can say that I've been smacked by a couple of hackers with the, <laughs> with Optus and, and Medibank here in Australia and the challenge is going to be moving forward the the comfort levels that asset owners are going to have with you know the the challenges we face with democratic data is the is that sometimes that information can be obtained by people that you really don't want to have it. I guess, do we see, do you see that as potentially being a, a restrictor in terms of people wanting to adopt these more digital workflows for managing their asset or that it's going to go, no, I'm happy keeping it as in its, in its silo right now and, and it doesn't matter if it's going to cost me more? Very much so. Uh, and this is across a number of industries, but we have seen this specifically in the building services industry and in building management. This notion of submitting or contributing my data to a pool of data where maybe I don't feel like I have complete end-to-end -end control is a genuine barrier to adoption of this technology set at the moment. 
um, you know, I think what we've seen in terms of cybersecurity across most industries is it's it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when and how do you best protect yourself against yeah. that, right? So, you know, whenever we're talking about sharing data and enabling access to data, there are a lot of really good things that we can do to actually enable that whilst staying safe as well. But they do require conscious thought and conscious investment in that as well. So, you know, I'm very strong in my background around cloud platforms and the adoption of cloud platforms. And, you know, we talk about this notion of democratization of technology. And one of the things I really feel that large-scale adoption of cloud did was provide people the tools to actually have that observability on, you know, who's accessing my system. It gave us the ability to write policy and to enforce in real time against that policy. So I think if you approach these things in the right way and you use modern standards and modern approaches, and there are genuine frameworks that we can use around this stuff to make sure that we do have the right degree of coverage, you can actually get a really effective outcome and a really high degree of security as well. But it's certainly not lost on us as an industry that things like, you know, the Critical Utilities Act as well. You know, we have a, a lot of utility clients that we work with who are genuinely very, very cautious and very concerned about this, and rightly so. Mm. It's the correct position to take. What we do need to avoid, though, is paralysis as a result of this. You know, there are many things that we can do to take advantage of data in, you know, a depersonalized way, for instance, right? So how can you reduce the materiality of that data but still gain effective outcome and insight from it? That's a really obvious place to start. You know, and a lot of these practices came out of the financial services industry where, you know, working through very, very large volumes of transactional data in a depersonalized way can still have a great impact in terms of the outcome that you might be looking for, right? Particularly when it comes to aspects such as security. So I would say we can apply that. We can absolutely apply it in the building services industry, but I know it is a note of caution at the moment. What we really need to do is, I think, stand up and, and showcase, demonstrate these patterns and how this works and face into answering those questions and building trust, right? So the more we can build trust, the more we'll drive greater adoption um, in the industry. It's a really important point, I guess, moving forward to where we go to the macro level, right? And it, having a building in isolation might be, you know, people might be more less or well, less stressed about that information or data, depending upon how it's formulated. But moving forward to kind of the, the broader scale and the challenges that I that I see with the culture in Australia, I guess, has seen us develop these great urban sprawls <laughs> here in Brisbane we like to build on floodplains um, and then we obviously have this overall kind of poor urban planning in place which then results in really really um, inefficient public transport and a huge reliance on on motor vehicles and that's how I see southeast Queensland I don't know how you see uh, Melbourne but we won't go into an urban design discussion today but the, the, the thing is is how can we use technology to then drive better design decisions in terms of how we design our cities or how we actually grow things. But here in, here in Queensland, we almost have Coolangatta to Noosa, <laughs> you know, we've got 250 kilometers and now Ipswich and Toowoomba are growing big here as well, which is going to see this 250 kilometer by a hundred kilometer spine of people. You know, what are your thoughts on, you know, smart city technology? If we if we t turn off the security thought for a moment, because <laughs> that could that could kind of scare people away. But how do you think that smart city technology can actually assist us? You know, with with this in, in challenging growth that we're going to have with our population over the next decade. 
Yeah, super important topic, Nathan. You know, I think the population of Australia, we're, we're pushing towards 30-odd million within the next 10 years. You know, it's a pretty significant increase from where we are. And, you know, from your comments, and you're, you're not unique at all in your experience in Brisbane, you know, this is a, a global challenge with uh, urbanisation. And it's, it's not just population, it's the drive towards urban density as well. You know, people are moving towards cities and that's a global mm. phenomenon. Right. So, you know, if it's aggravating now, what's it going to be like? You know, we know historically we're not the greatest at investing in infrastructure. We're certainly not the greatest at investing in it ahead of time and ahead of need and ahead of demand. Right. But specifically, you know, what can we do in terms of technology, making things like smart city technology enable um, better experience? I think there's a lot of things that we can do, right? And the obvious thing is that we begin with with the data and the data collection and being able to take advantage of understanding and awareness and insight. But when I look at things like the desire to optimise investment, right, so how do you make decisions around whether I should be investing in a road program or a rail program? And, you know, we see in the community there, there are people who are passionate about one or the other, but as a mature community, what we understand is that it's a combination of things that are going to go towards solving these problems, right? But I think we need to optimise the investments that we make, and this is where technology can actually play a really effective role. So, for instance, how would I do scenario modelling? How could I actually look at things like public event planning and say, what if I made some changes or what if we did this or what if we rerouted or adjusted? You know, maybe it's a traffic light sequence to optimise egress under certain circumstances. You know, why can't our road and transportation systems be more dynamic, actually understand in real time what is happening around them and make adjustments for that? And those sorts of things I think can have an enormous impact. The more you can do that sort of scenario modelling analysis in virtual reality before you invest in physical construction, the more effective that investment is going to be. You know, we did a really fascinating piece of work here in Victoria where it was just an innovation challenge that, that we did around how could we design better railway stations, right? And so you look at the increasing uh, population, you know, we want rail and uh, systems of public transport to be more accessible to people, to be more effective for a greater segment of the community. And the old school approach is you, you get a huge warehouse space, right? And you build a physical analog of a train station and you go walk through that train station and you go, oh, how's this working? But it's kind of quite abstracted, right? Because there's no ambience. You don't have the crowd around you. You don't know what it's like, you know, when, uh, you know, there's a huge, uh, you know, state rugby match on or something like that, right? And there's all these people swelling in. But if you really want to design for optimization, you have to be able to do that. And, and virtual reality is a really amazing way in which you can start to do that sort of thing. You might want to look at things like signage placement. You know, how can I make sure that people can understand where they're going? How can I make access to information better? You know, what would that look like to someone who's colorblind? Well, why don't I just put a filter on that next time I do my virtual reality walkthrough and I'll see what that looks like for those people, right? So I think it's really amazing what technology can do to start to unlock better design. But I think once we've also got built assets, there's a lot of things that technology is going to unlock. And I think, you know, one of the things we all talk about and we all get excited about is, you know, autonomous vehicles and, you know, the ability for our cars to drive themselves. And I think at the moment, that's also a bit of a closed system, a closed, you know, a closed loop. We're really talking about putting artificial intelligence technology within our singular vehicles so that they can assess the environment around them. You know, that's a stop sign, that's a pedestrian, that's a white line. Where this technology is going to go in future is when vehicles and objects start to communicate with each other. 
right? And so this is what technology can start to enable is a much more uh, broader perspective and a much more effective outcome because we can now have vehicles communicating with each other around things such as proximity and speed. We can have them alert each other around safety conditions such as, wow, I just hit a pothole. Yep. Um, all these things can happen. And the roads themselves can communicate, you know, the traffic light sequencing, you know, might instruct your car, hey, slow down to 40 kilometers an hour and you'll cruise through the green lights, right? I mean, what you know, what an amazing technology that would be. And I think there are so many things that we can do. And in, in many ways, to me, this comes back to this notion of creative thought. And how do you actually get creative about these uh, solutions and scenarios? And, you know, we've spoken in, you know, in the past about public-private partnership. I know it's been a topic of conversation on your podcast. I, I think one of the challenges that I really see at the moment is everybody gets excited about these Greenfields precinct type programs that we do where you have the opportunity to implement the latest, greatest technology at time of design and build but really unlocking the enablement and how smart technology can impact cities, I think is where and how we can retrofit it into existing systems. And this is where we're going to get the scale and this is where we're going to get the impact. And so the beauty of a lot of this modern technology now, when you think of things like IoT sensors, is that it, it is actually quite simple and quite cheap to implement. You know, again, putting aside the security aspects of things like CCTV, you know, to your point, Right? We can plug into existing feeds and we can start to do things like monitoring uh, crowd density right? and without you know, even delving into areas of face recognition or anything like that, you can get really meaningful data around saying, hey, there's a lot of people congregating in this area. Why is that occurring? You know, is it a public safety issue or is it just that there's a footy match on? Right? These sorts of things can become really valuable and really important, particularly in areas such as pandemic responses we've seen historically. Now, all that can be done with the technology that exists today, and it can be done really quite cheaply. You know, when we start to get into adaptive systems that then tell the trains, hey, send more trains, you know, maybe that requires a little bit more intelligence and a little bit more coordination. But all these things are possible in the future. And I think, you know, globally, what we're seeing with smart city technology is very, very creative. I'm hopeful to see that we, you know, the, the challenge is, is I'm hoping we're not going to have similar conversations in another decade time. But, you know, I think that opens a whole nother can of worms with regards to uh, the soft skills that we talked about before we, we started recording today and the challenges that we're facing with regards to change management and the like. But, James, thank you very much for your insights today, mate. They've been very um, positive and it's great to see someone that is kind of bridging, I guess, across multiple industries rather than just being focused on the construction and design side. It means that you kind of bring a broader external view on the world rather than just being stuck in, in the one place. Uh, and, and I guess from my perspective, it actually brings a, a broader or a broader interest for me in terms of what your thoughts are on this. But um, I have one final question for you, and it's a question I ask all of my guests. What does BIM mean to you? BIM to me means catalyst for change. And I think that's just a slightly abstracted answer. Yep. But I think there's two real areas where BIM can drive change at the moment. I think one is the obvious one in technical capability, um, particularly, you know, we talk a lot about collaboration and BIM being an enabler for collaboration, but put yourself in a mindset where this is increasingly becoming machine to machine collaboration. And I think you start to see how we can unlock some really creative and interesting things that we haven't been able to do historically in industry. But I think the other catalyst for change is just driving conversation. 
you know, and it's one of the reasons why I really admire what you've been doing with this podcast and your persistence over the years for which you've been doing it is that things don't change by accident. And if you want to drive your industry to an intentional state and an intentional outcome, you need to agitate for that change and you need change agents that are going to make that happen. So BIM to me is a catalyst for change. No, it's a very positive answer. But uh, thanks very much once again, James, for your time today. No worries. Thanks, Nathan. It's been a pleasure. So for more information on James and NCS Next Australia, please head over to the podcast section on the SKUD website for further reading. I look forward to sharing our next podcast with you in a fortnight's time. Until then, good luck with your digital transition, powered by Bond University's Building Information Modelling Program. Digital transition.